Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Have you ever seen a politician talk about their faith? It seems to be happening more and more often now. And you watch them, and some seem kind of uncomfortable talking about it, while others seem all too comfortable talking about it. The truth is, they know that they're in this impossible position. If their faith is genuine, it should be played out in individual belief and practice. But when politics and religious observance are kind of mixed together, the motive might get mixed up too, because truth is, they could garner some more votes by talking about their spiritual life, even if they don't have any. I watched once as a politician spoke at a religious gathering about his prayer life. I have to say it was, it was odd and awkward to watch this man talking about his prayer life, and he's kind of gaining some political advantage in the midst of it. And yet, all of us who were gathered there wanted to talk about Jesus. We kind of do this thing where we, we mix politics and religion, and we really don't get a pure sense of either one. It's not true politics, and it's not true religion. It's a mixture of both things. And we've had this kind of love-hate relationship with it all. See, what it draws to the surface for me as I was thinking about this this week is it, it makes sure that we, we, we can mix good things. We can take something good like prayer or giving or fasting, and we can kind of manipulate it for our own selfish purpose, can't we? And it's not just politicians who do this. I, I confess that I'm subject to this this morning. I can manipulate spiritual things for my own betterment and well-being. You can manipulate spiritual things for your own sake, can't you, this morning? Open to us all. We all can take spiritual things and traffic in those spiritual things without a true submission to the Lordship of Jesus. And I want to tune our hearts into this because I think Jesus tunes our hearts into this. See, here's our big idea this morning. Public and private piety can reveal the state of the heart. Public and private piety can reveal the state of your heart and my heart. What we are in public, it's different from what we are in private, reveals something about the nature of who we are. And what we are in private, if it's not played out publicly, also can reveal something about who we are. I think Jesus moves through this, and uh, he does this kind of thing where he uses a formula, and we'll talk about that here in a second, kind of a, a way of talking about things. He's using the same language in repetition. And I think when we talk about this this morning, we're going to talk about the wrong way of doing things, the correction that Jesus provides, and the ultimate outcome. Now, you can see we got all kinds of verses listed there. I promise we'll try not to make this too confusing, but I want to highlight something about the structure of our passage. I'm just going to invite you, whether it's on your cell phone or in a Bible this morning, to kind of look at this with me, because I want to highlight something about what Jesus is saying and the way he's speaking. See, what happens is sometimes we, we forget as we're reading these accounts that these were publicly spoken things. 
Whether it be an epistle or a sermon like this from Jesus, these things were meant to be heard rather than read. And so oftentimes what a speaker would do is he would use the same wording, the same phrasing to kind of tune your ear into something that he wanted to emphasize. Now notice what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He is giving us a formula, as it were. Starts off with this activity. He says, when you, and if you go to the next slide there, Dan, it's going to be on us on there for us. He says, when you do X, as the hypocrites do, there's an action that's there. And then he gives a, a purpose or a motive that they may be seen or, or something else. And then it, finally, there's the statement that they have received their reward in full in some translations. And then he goes on and he corrects the action. He says, but when you pray or when you give or when you fast, and then he corrects it. And then he says at the end, your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, Jesus is showing us this kind of formula this morning. And what I want to do is kind of chop up the formula. We're going to talk about those first section, when you, as the hypocrites do, so that they might, and they have received their reward in full. We're going to talk about that as the wrong action. And then we're going to focus in on those corrected actions in the second point this morning. The truth is, this morning we're hopping into a sermon in the middle of the sermon. And so it might not make as much sense if we just kind of pull it out of its context. But I want to talk a little bit about what's been happening in this most famous of Jesus' sermons in the Sermon on the Mount. He started off with the Beatitudes, right? Matthew 5, 1 through 11, blessed are those. He declares blessing on the poor in spirit, on those who mourn, on the meek. And what he's doing is Jesus is saying, because I'm here, those who were formerly marginalized, those who were formerly off on the edges of society, now are in God's blessing. Now they're brought into the inner circle because I'm present. I will provide a way, a means. And then in verses 13 through 16, he calls for us to be a city on a hill or to be salty. Not salty like, you know, bitter, angry. Salty as in effective, as in doing the work that God has set us, set before us. And he says in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This is my effectiveness. I'm going to give you the law over again. And by time and time again, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, and he lowers the, or he raises the bar on the commandment. He pushes deeper into the state of the heart. See, this is Jesus's sermon so far. And when he turns to Matthew chapter 6, not that Jesus had a manuscript that was the book of Matthew, but when, he, when we turn to Matthew 6, we hit this point in Jesus' sermon where he's going to turn to common everyday practices. And he's going to use those common everyday practices to highlight something specific. If we go back into Matthew 5, there's these two statements that Jesus makes. Matthew 5.18, he says, or Matthew 5.20, I believe. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. He concludes that section. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's the upshot of that? No one can fulfill God's law. Nobody can. We need grace and mercy from Christ. So when we turn to this section in Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, how do you give? How do you pray? How do you fast? 
with this orientation say, we need righteousness. Let's dig in this morning. Let's talk about the wrong way that Jesus highlights. Now, I'm going to read these verses, and we're going to start in verse 2, and we're going to go to verse 5, verse 7, and verse 16. Look what he says. He says, verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, let's take a look at what Jesus says across these three or four examples. First, the activity. He says, when you, and he starts off with this statement about giving to the needy in verse two. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Now, what is happening here? We don't really know. I don't really think there's a trumpet player following these Pharisees or hypocrites around. Probably what's happening, I think Blomberg had highlighted this, that when you drop the coin in the coffer, it made this extra clunk to it. It was drawing attention to those people who were giving. We don't really know, but what Jesus is highlighting is that they're giving in this kind of showy way. We see this again in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. These people are standing and praying out loud for the, everyone to hear them. Third example in verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They just intentionally try to look miserable in front of others. See, the activity that's described here is Jesus is, is saying there's a public nature to all of these things that these hypocrites are doing. In all of these examples, Jesus highlights a public preoccupation. These hypocrites give with trumpets. They pray aloud on street corners and they fast with disfigured faces and they are fundamentally about being noticed. In fact, that's what Jesus is Jesus points out in each instance that their goal is that they might be seen. That's what follows on the heels of all these things, right? He says that that they may be praised by others in verse 2. And then in verse 5, that they may be seen by others. And then in verse 16, that their fasting may be seen by others. See, Jesus looks beyond the exterior behavior and sees the interior motive. It's not new to us, is it? Remember when, when Samuel the prophet goes and looks for a king to replace King Saul? And he goes to the house of Jesse and he asks for his first son who's tall and handsome and ruddy. And, and the Lord says to him, man, does not, or God, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, right? God sees beyond the exterior things. God sees beyond these uh, external realities and he sees the internal realities of our hearts. Jesus is highlighting that here. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but people love to show you what their interior motive is through their outward action. 
Have you ever seen this? It's like a, a child. A child will show you what they really want through their actions. I just have noticed my, my wife and I have talked about how many times we can see couples that we love where one of the spouses will start to look good. They'll lose weight. They'll do whatever. And then the affair is just right around the corner. People will show you their desires through their actions. And if we pay attention, we'll see that. Now, we can't always jump to the conclusion and say, because you did X, we know this is coming. But sometimes our hearts want what they want, and they show us even before we get them exactly what we want. Look at the goal. The goal is there, right? Right? And he goes on and he describes the outcome in verses 2 and 5 and 16. It's the same phrase that's used in all of these things. He says, truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. They've received their reward. Jesus does this from time to time. He highlights something and he uses language to highlight this. He says, truly, I say to you. In fact, it's used some 28 times here in the book of Matthew, three times in our passage this morning. It's this way of highlighting the importance of what he's saying. Jesus is saying, truly, like pay attention. Truly, I'm saying to you, uh, this person has received their reward. There's no more reward coming to these people for these supposedly righteous actions. They're giving, they're praying, they're fasting. It's not going to lead to any kind of future benefit from them. See, when you publicly perform acts of religious performance for the purpose of being noticed, you already have your reward. Giving and praying and fasting were meant to be acts given toward God. By the way, this isn't new. This is something that the prophets had been pointing out in Israel time and time again. I'll show a couple passages to you. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Isaiah says this, he says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Hey, stop trampling my courts with your sacrifices because your hearts are far from me. Micah chapter 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God's not pleased with all of these sacrifices. It's not just the outward conformity. See, the point is, so often made by the prophets, the point is that, that God wasn't pleased with blind religious observance. He wanted earnest engagement, not ritualistic religion. This is what Jesus is talking about here. So we see this and we say, it's possible. It's possible for us to use good actions for sinful purposes. Consider this. It's possible for us to use religious activity for sinful ends. There's no action this morning that is inherently righteous. 
there are actions that are inherently sinful, right? You cannot have an affair to the glory of God. You cannot get drunk to the glory of God. You can't do it. There are things that would seem like they're good, righteous actions that we would think if we just did them, they would kind of garner faith or garner merit with God. We just prayed more if we read the Bible more, if we uh, gave more to the poor, if we did this or that or the other thing, it would seem like it just earned favor for us. It earned points with God. Paul says something interesting in Romans chapter 14. He's having this discussion about whether we should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Kind of a confusing topic for the day. We know because Paul brings it up in a couple different letters in a couple different places. But in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, he gives us this this principle. And he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You and I, we love to do this thing where we define sin just based on what the action is. This action is sinful and this action is righteous. But I think what Jesus is orienting us toward today, that we can do right actions for wrong reasons because we don't have faith. See, my sinful heart can use prayer for its sinful purpose. James warns us of this in James 4. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motive, right? And and Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. So it it bears reason that you and I could actually do right things with, with deceitfully wicked intentions. John Bunyan, who I always confuse with Paul Bunyan, and those are two very different people, right? One real and one not. John Bunyan, he said this, he said, there's enough sin in my best prayer to damn the whole world. See, the point is that the act itself does not make it acceptable to God. There are nuns and priests and pastors who sin. The history of the popes is not one of constant purity and righteousness. Our seemingly outward dedication to righteous things doesn't mean they are righteous before God inherently. And Jesus is drawing our attention to the spiritual direction of our actions. Our our prayers lifted up to heaven where they become a spiritual aroma in the nostril of God? Or are they self-terminating on my desires and my wants so that they hit the ceiling and bounce back down? See, Jesus tells us that religious actions are not inherently pleasing to God. See, if we're here this morning to hear about how not to pray, this is textbook, isn't it? If we're going to talk about how not to pray, this is the thing we should avoid most, right? If we are not to pray well, we should do so with selfish intention. We should tell everyone about our prayer life. We should publicly make spectacle of ourselves in prayer. We should do so with self-righteous intentions. But notice that Jesus gives us some remedies here. He gives us the correction in verses 3 and 6 and 9 and 17. Look at verse 3. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at verse 6. 
says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at verse nine. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And then in verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice the activity. He says, but when you give, but when you pray, but when you fast. Jesus calls for drastic change of action. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Go into your closet and pray in your room. In verse 6, verse 17, when you fast, wash your face. That's extreme, isn't it? For all you teenage boys out there, that is extreme. I'm not sure we understand how strange these things would have sounded to Jesus' audience. I'm not sure we understand the culture that it was in this first century for for people to just make displays of their righteousness. We have an example in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus tells a a story of a, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee stands up and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. These actions were overwhelmingly public, overwhelmingly to make a display of righteousness. But there's also something that we should note here. That if we just kind of take these things and make them into law, we ourselves become like the Pharisees, don't we? If we say, well, I'm going to give, but I'm not going to give, I'm not going to let my left hand know what my right hand is doing, which sounds impossible, right? Or if I'm going to pray, but I'm always only going to pray in my bedroom. I'm always going to wash my face and not let anyone know about prayer or my fasting. We've kind of made a new law, and it really still isn't getting to the nature of our hearts. See, being secretive in your giving doesn't mean your motives are right, or praying in your closet doesn't make your prayer righteous. Washing your face when fasting doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it correctly. Is exactly what the Pharisees had done. They had so extended the law, so it wasn't enough just to observe the Sabbath, but you weren't supposed to carry anything during the Sabbath. They were convinced that uh, the way in which they, they observed the law was the key to their righteousness, and so Jesus critiques them. He says things like, they preach, but they don't practice. He says that they washed the outside of the cup, but inside the cup was still full of filthiness and greed. So what are these solutions that Jesus gives? What do they have in common? Notice again that what was commonly public is now to be made private. Jesus speaks of God seeing in secret in verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. In verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others. If, if God sees the secret things we do, our faithful observant doesn't need to be done in front of others. Giving is to be secretive. Prayer is to be personal. Fasting is to be hidden. 
Jesus wants to take religious observance away from being intentionally public. I heard a story recently. A man was a janitor at a church for years upon years upon years, and he faithfully served his congregation. And when they called up, I think they called him up to give him an award when he retired, and he was so upset because he thought that it took away from his his eternal reward to get public acclaim. I think that's also a misunderstanding, right? We can pray in public. We can honor others in public. We can do all of these things. We have to be aware of the intentional, sinful notions of our hearts, don't we? See, the key this morning of what Jesus is talking about is to be Godward and not gaudy. Not much for a style kind of person, right? But you all know what I say when we talk about gaudy things, like the the person who just likes things that are showy, that are kind of overblown. What we want is we want a pattern of religious prayer observance that is Godward and not gaudy. Our prayer is this conversation with God. And in some sense, other people don't always need to hear about how we relate to the Lord. this conversation with God that's pouring out our concerns and our desires. It helps us square our hearts with God's. But if our prayer kind of uh, turns selfish, it puts everything on its head, doesn't it? We want to show off our self-righteousness. We're no longer a person in need. We're a person who's figured it out person who can stand in front of others and talk about how righteous and holy we are. At least we can give that display off to others, can't we? See, there's one more part of Jesus' equation that he gives to us, and this, this idea of the outcome. Look at what he says here in verse 4. Says, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, Jesus holds out these two different rewards, doesn't he? There are those who, because of their patterns of giving and prayer and fasting, they already have their reward. But there's also this reward that's given to those who are faithful. Jesus describes it in verse six or 4 and 6 and 18. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And we've kind of ignored this section, kind of the elephant in the room of this text. This prayer that Jesus gives us in verses 9 through 13. Look at how Jesus tells us to pray. Specifically, verses 11 and 12 and 13. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. This person who prays this prayer is oriented toward their spiritual need, not their spiritual accomplishment. They see themselves as needy for bread that only God can provide, needy for forgiveness that they cannot earn and only God can provide, needy for protection from the things which they can't endure in verse 13. 
And then verse 14 and 15, Jesus does this little teaching on forgiveness. And it's confusing because sometimes we feel like, well, why is that even there? I don't understand how this fits in what Jesus is saying. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, right? If you are forgiven, you will forgive. If you are unforgiven, you will withhold forgiveness. By the way, this isn't the only time that Jesus makes this statement. He says it again in Matthew 18. What's he hinting at here? See, the state of our prayers reflects upon the state of our relationship with the Lord. If we come to God as one needy for grace, needy for bread, needy for forgiveness, needy for protection, we orient ourselves toward prayer differently, don't we? We don't come to God and say, Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me like this man, a sinner. We come to God and say, Lord, I am a sinner, and therefore forgive me. I need grace. I need mercy. I need kindness from you. I need the blood of Jesus Christ spilt for me. I need your provision. See, Jesus isn't advocating for a new way of giving or praying or fasting. He's directing us to to what giving, praying, and fasting have always been about. They are a recognition that I am spiritually needy. I need divine grace. And when I posture myself as spiritually capable, I lie. There's a story in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus calls Levi, also known as Matthew, the author of our book this morning. He calls him to come and follow him. And so what happens is Levi leaves everything behind, and he picks up and follows Jesus. And he hosts this kind of banquet for all of these tax collectors and sinners. And what happens then is that these Pharisees walk by or, or are present somehow, and they see Jesus eating with this kind of group of people, and they ask, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? I love what Jesus says in response in Luke chapter 5, 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just pause for a moment. Just unpack exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I didn't come for righteous people. I came for those who knew they weren't righteous. Which, by the way, is all of us, right? Paul says it with such clarity. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus comes and in the fullness of deity, in the fullness of, fullness of his mankindness, of his humanness, and he lives a perfect, flawless life for 33 years, and he goes to Calvary and lays down his life so that he might save needy men and women, men who need a physician, women who need a physician like you and I. See, what I think Jesus is advocating for is not that we just kind of do this new pattern of giving or of praying or of fasting. What Jesus is advocating for is that we recognize our neediness in giving and praying and fasting. We say, I'm not righteous. 
that I embrace new patterns based upon my need of forgiveness as he prays there in chapter or in verse 12. See, my statement to us this morning is that you and I, I'm going to call you to pray like a sinner. To pray like you are someone who has violated the righteousness of God. Those who view themselves as saints, pray like God owes them. You see that? Those who view themselves as right with God, who have uh, right standing with God, they, they pray like God actually owes them something. I don't know if you've ever been in that spot. Maybe you're hard-pressed in a situation in life and you feel like, God, I've done nothing but serve you. You, you owe me this one. You owe me the, the curing of cancer in my loved one. You owe me this extra amount of money so that I can pay the bills. You owe me this or that. Why do I struggle so much when I continually serve you? You see how there's self-righteousness just bound up in that prayer. Second thing under this is We should fight the impulse to present ourselves as more pious than we really are, shouldn't we? This can be a real struggle for us. I don't know if you ever feel like this. Feel like you have to kind of present yourself as put together. Someone who's got it all figured out. Do this in parenting sometimes. We we only like to present the, the good things that happen in our parenting circles. like the social media version of our life, right? We get to select and choose which parts we're going to let people see. And we get really selective about how exactly we're going to present ourselves. It's kind of a 21st century version of what's happening here in Matthew chapter 6, where we get to curate the parts of our lives that other people are going to see. And, and we like to present ourselves with our best foot forward. We like to present ourselves in this way that we are uh, a happy home, that we have a, a good, happy you know, being together. We're always on vacation, and I want to show you the thing I just had for dessert, right? Here's my social media post. It's the cake I just had or the coffee that I'm eating with the Bible open up, right, so that you can see it perfectly. We love to curate our image. Let me ask you, how do you curate your image to make yourself look more righteous than you really are? Let's fight the impulse to present ourselves as more pious than we are by boasting in our weakness. Isn't that what Paul talked about? Boast in my weaknesses. I'll tell you how stupid I am, all the foolish things that I've done, and yet God has been gracious and kind to me despite those things. I love when we, uh, when I was in college, they would bring in these speakers and they would um, introduce them and they'd say, so-and-so is from such-and-such Baptist church. It was always a Baptist church, right? Such-and-such Baptist church, which has 3,000 members, and it's da 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 And they would like list off the litany of his resume. They've never invited me to speak, but I wondered if I could write my own resume, right? Jason Bradshaw graduated with a 2.3 GPA from Cedarville University. He sometimes pays for gas and forgets to pump it. He's a genuine moron. What if we boasted in our weakness? What if we said, God is undeservedly gracious to me? 
What if we prayed like those who were in need of constant, fresh grace from God every morning? See, those who are sinners pray in desperation. When we understand that grace is for the undeserving, we should pray with a kind of urgency. Because I can't handle it on my own. I love this quote from Samuel Miller. I guess Samuel Miller was a Presbyterian pastor from a long time ago in the United States, so it's not that long, but listen to this quote. It says, the deeper his own sense of his own unfitness, the more likely will he be to apply unceasingly and opportunely for heavenly aid. And the nearer he lives to the throne of grace, the more largely he will partake of that wisdom and strength which he needs. Let me read that again. The deeper his own sense of his unfitness, the more likely he be to apply unceasingly and opportunely for heavenly aid. Right? If you're a bigger sinner, the more you ask God for grace. And... The nearer he lives to the throne of grace, the more largely he will partake of that wisdom and strength which he needs. The bigger sinner you are, the more you desperately pray, and the more desperately you pray, the more God meets you in your desperation. What what if that was the theme for our summer? Sinners in search of divine grace. What if that was the theme of my time in prayer before the Lord, quietly in my bedroom, quietly seeking the Lord's face, sinners in need of divine grace? What would that look like? Next week, we're going to dive into this prayer. I think we're going to see God's heart for how we frame our life. You can see in verse 9 and 10, there's a heavenly directive. And then in verses 11 through 13, there's a horizontal directive. Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. Right now, we need to set the foundation, right? I'm a sinner in need of grace. Let's go before the Lord as sinners in need of grace now. Lord, we ask now that you would make us men and women of prayer. Not self-righteous prayer not self-reliant prayer that wants to boast of its accomplishment. Make us men and women of desperate prayer before your throne. As we are men and women needy of your grace. Press that upon our hearts and our minds so that we might live to please you in all things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.